0: Did you know there's all kinds of flood stories all around the earth? Different peoples, nations, cultures of the earth have their various flood stories. You can read about those online if you wish, but I found one interesting one. A man named Dan Snow, who is a linguist uh, who's working with uh, Wycliffe Bible translators amongst the Samo-Kubo tribe of Papua New Guinea, Uh, He reported a flood story of uh, some isolated people there. It goes like this. Back at the dawn of time, there were certain people who were tormenting the lizards in Papua New Guinea. At last, the uh, lizards could stand it no longer, so they complained to the lizard man. And he sent a rain that caused the floodwaters to, to rise until everyone, except for Two brothers. Everybody drowned except for two brothers. And these escaped by sailing off on a raft that was just big enough for the two of them. And in the uh, Samo-Kubo tribe, the most meaningful relationship a man can have is with his brother. And so hence the part of the story about the two brothers being saved. Apparently, it didn't occur, by the way, to the... uh, Samo Kubo tribe that the repopulation of the earth by two male brothers would uh, be biologically impossible. But anyway, that's us uh, not go down that track. But uh, there was a uh, <laughs> a hitherto unknown tribe with almost no contact here with the outside world, and they have they have as a part of its legendary past a story of a of destruction by a flood that is similar to the biblical story we have here in Genesis 7 now of course there's many differences but the essence of the story uh, in fact there's the essence of the story around the world often remains the same so let's read the the original story from God's word here in Genesis chapter 7 Then the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of heaven also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds, and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th Day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. The very same day Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. Verse 14 They and every beast according to its kind The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, birds, 150 days. The main idea from this particular chapter here in Genesis 7 is this, my friends, that Yahweh destroys the wicked, but saves a remnant. This is who Yahweh is. Yahweh is His name, by the way, when you see all capital letters in your Bible, L-O-R-D, Lord That is God's name, Yahweh. So I prefer to use that, and I will use that today. So we we see in these first nine verses that Yahweh delivers the righteous from judgment. This is God's judgment coming upon the earth because of their wickedness. We saw that in chapter 6. So they are getting what they deserve... God had originally seen His creation was very good, but now it is corrupted by sin, and so it is no longer very good, it is wicked. We see, first of all, that God commands Noah here and his family to enter into the ark. We see that in verse 1. Now, It's interesting that God had spoken to Noah nearly 100 years earlier, and He gave them instructions concerning the ark, very specific instructions, how to build it, what to make it out of how to fill in the gaps. Uh, He even told him how many decks. He told him to put a window on the top. You know, all this sort of stuff. Very detailed instructions. Uh, Not only concerning the ark, but as, as well as the animals. And then God assured him the flood would come on schedule. It's interesting. There had been no further word from God, up to this point here, but Noah... Nevertheless, praise God, had proceeded faithfully with his mission and his ministry. He obeyed God's commands without question. He was a faithful man. And with all of the urgency possible, the second Peter tells us he preached righteousness. He preached of God's coming judgment. And he did this year after year, but to no avail, except as far as we know, there were no converts other than his own family. But at this point in time, God commanded Noah and his family to enter the ark. Finally, the ark is completed after all these years. And God assembles all the animals. Noah didn't have to go around chasing them and herding them up. God did that for him. For 120 years, it would be up for 120 years. Just imagine that. 120 years. The time is finally up. God sees, of course, everything is ready. Noah's been faithful. Now it is the time. So then it was. Here we had this century of silence, if you will, that God is now again speaking to Noah. Noah had done, as Hebrews 11 says, he had prepared an ark for the saving of his house. Hebrews 11 tells us that Noah exercised faith in God. He believed God's word, and he believed it so much he he acted upon it. And because Noah had, had exercised faith in God's word, God saw that, or he 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 accounted Noah's faith as righteous. He accounted Noah as righteous, and he saved both him and his family. And in all of this, we see God's. That God is gracious. He is a God of grace in providing for him, which he could have never done for himself. But we also see here that God tells Noah to take animals on the ark. Isn't it interesting that God cares for his creation enough to provide for the animals as well? See in verses 2 and 3. Why does God do this, though? Well, he specifically says so here in verses 2 and 3. It was... To to keep their offspring alive, God wanted His planet Earth to be populated by His animals, and in fact, He's very specific here. He says, uh, for different for clean animals as opposed to the unclean animals. Now, why seven pairs of clean animals? As far as I can tell, there's two reasons. You look at verse, well, chapter eight, verse twenty. Chapter 8, verse 20 says that uh, uh, they come off the ark and Noah builds an altar to the Lord and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So uh, it, it appears one of the reasons was for sacrifices. Obviously, if there's only a male and a female and you go and you kill one of them, then they can't reproduce, right? So apparently one reason is for sacrifices and then the other one is in chapter 9, verse 3. The other reason is uh, there in verse chapter 9, verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So, praise God, now we can be carnivores. So, they're also food. The clean animals were useful for food. And third, we see that God gives a, a final flood warning here in verse 4. The final flood warning. Did you see verse 4 says, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. So God is now revealing here in, in seven more days, the flood's going to come on the earth. Obviously, this is the amount of time needed for Noah to load the animals as well as uh, provision and the people. It was it was enough time for the final preparations to be done for the loading of the ark. And on that day, God says, I'm going to send rain to exterminate life on the earth. Notice this text shows us that God is the one who is going to bring the rain. And, he, and it's going to come right on time, exactly the day He said it's going to happen. Just think about how hard it is for meteorologists today to, to, to try to guess seven days out. <laughs> right, seven days out—it it is really a guess, isn't it? With the weatherman is saying this is gonna, what's gonna happen in seven days. They often get it wrong. God knows because He's in charge of the weather. And this is what's gonna happen seven days. He says. So He's in charge of the rain, and it's a great statement, by the way, of. God's sovereignty, showing that He's the one in charge. He's the one in control of nature. We see Him bringing the animals. We see Him dealing with the weather here. Notice the rain's going to last 40 days and 40 nights. That's a significant number in your Bible. Do a little uh, number study all the way through Scripture. You'll find the, 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 the number 40 is actually symbolic of a a period of testing and trial. For example, let me just tell you a few examples of how this works. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years of temptation. Remember, they had disobeyed God and didn't believe God that God was going to give them that promised land. And so God killed off that whole generation for 40 years of temptation in the wilderness. Another example is when Goliath was taunting Israel for 40 days before David comes to the battle scene there and and takes out Goliath. Jesus was, was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. So it is a time of testing and trial, often in Scripture. And Yet again, we have another time of testing and trial coming upon the world. So Noah and his family here are... Are about to go uh, undergo a great period of testing. But well, praise God, we see Noah obeys God here in verses five through nine. I don't want to get too bogged down on this section, but 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 at least notice that Noah did what God had told him to do. We we see his total obedience, particularly stressed in verse five when it just says that Noah did all that Yahweh had commanded him, all. Now, that's a good example for us. Noah didn't just do most of what God had commanded him, but he did all, 100% of what God had commanded him to do. And so, you, you can see how Noah obeys God in those verses. Uh, you can just read along there for yourself some point. We've already read it, but that's the that's a man of faith obeys what everything what god has told him to do are you a person of faith are you willing to do what, everything god tells you to do or not do or is there some some part of your heart that you have somehow reserved and you think this is this is my part he is Lord of ninety nine percent of me, but you know i i'm you know I get this one little closet that's mine, my friends, He's either Lord of all or Lord of nothing, but not only did Yahweh save a remnant we we see most of this chapter number two, the Yahweh's judgment destroys the wicked, destroys the wicked. We see in verse 10 the flood starts just as God said it would after the seven-day warning period. We see in verse 10 that the seven days now the the, the waters are coming upon the earth. And so the flood begins just as God said it would. When did this happen? Well, verse 11 tells us that the flood began when Noah was 600 years old. It's interesting, God gives us even down to the very days and the months of using Noah's life as the example here. So we know just how many days the flood lasted. What is the cause of the flood? Well, verse 11 tells us, first of all, you have all the subterranean waters under the, the, the crust of the earth. In other words, they're springing up from inside the earth and forming all of these seas and rivers. So obviously the earth was different back then from it is now Uh, the, the second thing that god mentions here is you have all the celestial waters again very different from what we have today the celestial waters in the canopy encircling the globe is now being dumped on the earth for 40 days so that's how the flood begins it was very catastrophic very deadly but I want to address some, some of the questions that, that people ask when they come to this portion of Scripture. And one of them is, how could all the animals fit on the ark? Well, verses 14 and 15 answer that question. How could all the animals fit on the ark? Because you look around at all the various species on planet Earth today, and some say, well, that's impossible to get them all on this boat. But verse 14 and 15 talk about the, the various Kinds. Now that's not remember we talked about that earlier in a previous chapter. It it is not the same thing as species. Remember, kinds are things that can 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 uh can interbreed with one another. For example, you get things like ligers and tig- tigons and and uh and zorces, things like that, right? So you know zebras and horses can breed together and you get a zorse. Tigers and lions can breed together. They're cats, right? So kind is a cat, right? Those things that can breed with one another. There wasn't all those sort of things that we have today. So notice what um, Ken Ham, who is of Answers in Genesis Ministry, he wrote a very helpful article you can find in the Evidence Bible. And uh, here's I'm quoting from the Evidence Bible here. Here's what he said. In the book Noah's Ark, Creationist researcher John Wood Morap suggests that at most 16,000 animals were all that were needed to preserve the created kinds that God brought into the ark. The ark did not need to carry every kind of animal, nor did God command it. It carried only air-breathing, land-dwelling animals, creeping things, and winged animals such as birds, aquatic life such as fish and whales, etc., Insects and many amphibious creatures could have survived in sufficient numbers outside the ark. This cuts down significantly on the total number of animals that needed to be on board. Another factor that greatly reduces the space requirements is this. The tremendous variety in species we see today did not exist in the days of Noah. Only the parent kinds of these species were required to be on board in order to repopulate the earth. For example, only two dogs were needed to give rise to all the dog species that exist today. There are now more than 200 species of dogs, all of which have descended from one original dog kind. All other types of animals, that is cat kind, horse kind, cow kind, etc., have similarly been naturally and selectively bred to achieve the wonderful variation in species that we have today. God programmed this variety into the genetic code of all animal kinds and even humankind. So obviously, from Noah and his three sons and their wives, we get all people, all ethnicities have come from that today. Another question that people have is, were there dinosaurs on the ark? Because remember, that if you, if you get caught up in that whole evolutionary theory, people think that dinosaurs, well, they were a long, long time ago. They, they didn't live the same time as man, right? That's what evolution would teach you. But uh, if you look at verse, verse 14, verse 14 would tell you, yes, there were dinosaurs on the ark. You're not going to find the word dinosaur in your Bible. Because the word dinosaur wasn't invented until, oh, I can't remember the date, but I think it was, what, the late 1800s. When? 1820? Okay. So, thank you. So, 1820. But if you look in your Bible there, in verse 14, when it talks about every beast, that includes the dinosaurs. So, yes, there were dinosaurs on the ark. That's where you get all these legends coming from people killing dragons and so forth. So yes, there were dinosaurs on the ark, and they came off the ark and bred and so forth. Then in verse 16, we see that God shuts the door of the ark. God is the one in charge. God's the one protecting this remnant and saving them. So this is the final act. This is the point of no return at this point. There's no way that once God shuts that door that anything or anyone's getting off, anyone's getting in. God Himself is the one. He closed the door of the ark. And So, so from this point, humans and land animals who are outside the ark, they're doomed for destruction. But this divine enclosing of the ark here is doing a couple things. It's, uh, it's, it's at least assuring that all the human beings... And the animals inside the ark are going to be protected because this great God is going to protect them. He's not only shutting the door, He's going to keep the door shut. And when the time comes, He's going to let them off. It shows God's provision and protection. very gracious God. And we also see that the flood here in verse 17 covers the whole globe covers the whole globe there's various theories out there was it a local flood uh, or something else i believe in a worldwide universal flood and and some people say well if you believe in a worldwide flood well how could those highest mountains be covered how could the highest mountains be covered It, it, it says they were if you see um verse 18 that the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. In in fact, verse 19 says, It was so mightily on the earth that all the high Mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Now you need to keep a couple things in mind here. The earth was different back in creation than it was after the flood. Things changed dramatically. But... uh, First of all, nothing in Genesis here implies that the mountains uh, were all submerged at their present height. Obviously, today, what what's the highest mountain? Mount Everest, something like 29,000 feet. Everest wasn't 29,000 feet before the flood. So that here's what uh, Jonathan Safardi in uh, the Genesis account, he says this, The mountains were uplifted rapidly after the flood. Catastrophic plate tectonics would provide the enormous energy needed and also the sediments were not yet consolidated so could be bent up more readily. So the flood needed only to cover the highest mountains of the pre-flood world, which were probably much lower than the mountains today. Quote. So, if you know anything about geology, you'll see you notice, uh, just watch all the various levels. Even here in New Zealand, you, you'll see places where you can see various levels of sediment. You'll see often they, uh, where there's hills or mountains, you'll see them going up. There's a great pushing of all the plates in the earth going on during the flood and after the flood. But then some people look at this and say, well, hey, where did all the flood water go? Where did What about all that water? That's a lot of water if it's covering all the mountains of the earth. Where'd they go? Well... You'll notice in the slide on the screen here, there's a lot of water. In fact, it's called the Blue Planet, isn't it, because of all that water? In fact, uh, they they say, according to the scientists, uh, approximately 70 percent of the Earth is covered with water. So the the water from the flood, well, if you want to know where it is, it's right there. We we, we can see it from outer space, right? It, Go stand at the ocean and look at it. It makes up our oceans. The oceans cover about two-thirds of the Earth's surface, and they do it to a very deep depth. Uh, my understanding is, from my reading, the average depth of the major oceans, that is beyond the continental shelves, around the uh, the continents, is approximately 12,000 feet deep. While some ocean trenches, like the Mer uh, I forget it. the word that starts with an M, the Mariana Trench or whatever it's called. uh, That thing is considerably deeper. In fact, it's deeper than Mount Everest is high. That's a lot of water. So much water that if you lowered the height of today's mountains and you raised the ocean valleys, there'd be more than enough water to cover the whole surface of the earth. And here's what Mr. Gore said don't know his first name, but uh, uh, Mr. Gore said this, quote, The average ocean depth is about 3.8 kilometers, while the average continental height above sea level is only .84 kilometers. <laughs> so obviously the ocean's much deeper than the earth. And then there's a, uh, a website, uh, the com, said this, If all the land in the world was flattened out, the earth would be a smooth sphere, completely covered by a continuous layer of seawater, 2,686 meters, or 1.6 miles deep. So if somebody asks you, where did all the water go, you say it's still there. Plenty of water for God to do what he needed to do. And, the, and here's what happens, my friends, in verses 21 through 23, is that the flood destroys everything that has the breath of life. There are some things that don't have the breath of life, or you know, fish breathe through gills or whatever. That fish didn't need to be on the ark because they had gills. right? So we have such a, a globe-covering flood, and a lethal one, that land-dwelling creatures, including man and even many of the sea creatures... Were fossilized. Many of these were were buried and and formed the fossil record that we have. Thus, the fossil record. By the way, I love the way Ken Ham puts it: is it's it's not a record of a succession of great ages. It's not showing improving evolutionary theory. It's a sequence of rapid burial, rapid burial. Once again, the account is universal in its scope. God is, is so plain here in the text. Just take the plain reading of the text and you will come away believing in a worldwide flood. These verses here show the total destruction of all animal life on the land. And there, there's a repetition of the universality of the flood. For example, just look at verse 21. You see in verse twenty one notice notice words like all every just to for example, it says all flesh died that moved on the earth it wasn't a local flood, no all flesh that on the earth died verse twenty two everything on dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died verse twenty three also says that god blotted out every living thing, and so there's this repeating language using words like all and every. And so this repeated universal statement should leave no doubt that there was a destruction of the land animals and the human beings who were outside the ark. And by the way, to remove all doubt here, verse 23 says, How many people were left alive? Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. That's it. There's no way this could have been a local flood. God's judgment was complete. Well, as if that's not bad enough, we see in verse 24, God just lays it out here at the end in verse 24. and We see the flood conquers the earth. God conquers the earth in verse 24 when he says that the waters prevailed on the earth. That's the conclusion of the chapter. There is nothing but water over the whole earth. The word, by the way, prevailed, has this idea of conquering. And so there was no land surface that was exposed anywhere. Even the land was taken out. In verses 19 to 23, you get the frequency of this Hebrew word kol. The Hebrew word kol often gets translated in English as all or every. And it's indicating here that God is just going out of His way, emphasizing the universality of the flood. You're going to see that word all used four times in those verses. The word every is used two times. The the words whole and only are used one time each, just in verses 19 to 23, emphasizing the universality of a worldwide flood. And that has serious implications... Say, why am I parking on this point? Because if you don't get that point, if you believe in a local flood, then you start reading other portions of your Bible, they're not going to make sense. Okay? Let me just point out to you a few things, particularly what Jesus said, which I hope you believe what Jesus said. Jesus believed in Adam and Noah in a in a worldwide flood. But I, I want to start with what Peter says. Because one of the most significant texts in the Bible, maybe even the most significant text in the Bible for a worldwide flood, has got to be 2 Peter 3, verses 5 and 6. Uh, You'll notice when we read this here, it's on the screen, that in this particular passage, Peter is arguing against what is often called the doctrine of uniformitarianism. That's a big word, but it's, it's just this idea that there's this constant... Natural behavior of the elements that just carries on. Everything's just the same, and always has been the same, and there's not really much changing. Well, that's what some people would say who believe in the local flood theory. That's what they're implying. Notice what Peter says, because he uses the the flood here as an illustration. 2 Peter 3, verse 5, he says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact. Now, who's he talking about? Well, read the previous verses. He's talking about the scoffers, the, the unbelievers who, who are attacking God and what he's, he said in his word. And he, Those people deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Notice the, I'll explain this in here, but Peter, what's he doing? Peter's looking forward to a day when people will no longer take the promise of Christ's future coming seriously. And by the way, we're in that day, right? How many people take Christ's coming seriously? Well, they wouldn't, they wouldn't believe what they believe. They wouldn't be doing what they're doing if they took Christ. If they knew Christ was coming today, how different would our culture be? How different would people be acting? They wouldn't be carrying on as in Noah's day, just eating and drinking and being merry. No. There'd be a huge difference. And so, Peter's looking forward to our day. When they wouldn't take Christ coming seriously, and what is he doing here? He's countering this reason that, that they're gonna give for their skepticism. In verse 4, he, he says, you know, people are saying things like, well, where is Christ coming that, that he promised? You know, they're very skeptical and joking about this. Hey, ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it's been since the beginning of creation. No! Peter's just quoting them, he's quoting the scoffers, but that's not the case. Uh, The idea is that they're going to argue that God does not intervene in history to overturn the observable workings of nature. Wrong. So what we see now was also characteristic of the past, and it's going to be in the future. That's what Peter's telling us. We have nothing out of the ordinary to fear. So Peter replies here that there's two past events that cannot be explained on the basis of this uniformitarian viewpoint. In other words, there's this constant, unchanging past going on to the future. And, and notice the, the first event is the creation itself. Verse 5. By God's word, the heavens existed, and the earth was formed out of the water and by water. So creation's the first event. And the second event that Peter mentions, showing that, yes, things do change, is the flood. When Notice it says in verse 6, The world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And then Peter goes on and he says in verse 7, By the same word, the same word from God, the present heavens and earth are reserved for another judgment. And this one is not by a flood. It is by fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So, this in this sense, I do believe in global warming. But not, made, man, not man-made global warming. This is God-made global warming. And it's going to destroy everything. Everything on planet Earth will be burned. And so in this passage, the one event to which Peter appeals... To, to show the theory of of these people who think, well, all things continue on as they have. Well, what does he do? He he points to the flood. The flood. Well, that's not continuing on as everything has been, right? This is meaningless here. If Peter was thinking of a local flood, it was the flood to which Peter appealed as his final answer here. And I was, why does he do that? Well, the flood demonstrated a lot of things. One thing we can learn is some things about God from this flood. The flood demonstrated God's holy wrath. It shows what He thinks about sin and our wickedness. And it's also illustrating, as Peter says, it's illustrating the final day of judgment. It's coming. Be ready. Now, what did Jesus have to say about the ark and Noah's flood, or the the flood, well, the same connection with his coming future judgment actually characterizes Christ's reference to noah in in matthew chapter twenty four verse thirty seven Look what Jesus says, because Jesus believed in Noah, he was a real person and a real flood. Here's what jesus says matthew twenty four verse thirty seven he says as it was in the days of Noah." So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. By the way, next verse is not talking about the rapture. Okay? this is This is judgment at the end here. Right? Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. So the flood's universality is important, my friends. This is not an insignificant story that's just squashed here into the text. This is a teaching from the Bible that plays out in other portions of scripture and so within that context it's especially important because it is the one great historical demonstration by god that in the day of wrath none shall escape his justice none will escape his justice so the universal flood is important because it is a it is it is proof my friends of a final universal judgment so you are alive today. You are breathing at the moment. Now is the time for you to be right with God, because Judgment Day is coming, my friends, and there won't be a second chance. And That judgment it came once, and it will not. It, it, and, it, and we see what does God say? What did Jesus say? It's going to come again. But we note that even as Christ speaks of judgment here, He speaks also of those who will belong to Him in that day. There are some in this judgment who will be left. In other words, they will be spared. They will be saved. And like those in the ark, Noah and his wife, his three sons, and their wives are like people who are united to Christ by saving faith. All who have been united to Christ will be saved. They are going to be rescued, they will escape the final judgment, and God will keep them safe. As in Noah's day, the judgment will bring bring eternal loss to those who have rejected the way of salvation, but there is eternal security to those who are in Christ. Christ is like the ark. If you're in Him, you're safe. If you're outside Christ, you die. Right? Beautiful analogy there. And so in the ark, Noah was surrounded by all this evidence of judgment. He could see it, he could hear it, but he was nevertheless safe. And so you may, may be, if you are in Christ, my friend. If you are not in Christ, now is the time to renounce your sinful way of life and come to Him. But there's a final lesson that we can walk away with here. There, there's a lesson in that there is an end to grace. Yes, God is gracious, praise God for that but there is an end to grace my friend grace is great but it is not an unending thing if it is rejected the day of reckoning eventually comes and for one final week here yes Uh, go go talk to Daniel please he's Do you mind helping, please? Just, just she'll, she'll show you. Yeah, sorry, we school requires us to do that. But my friends, if God's grace is rejected, the day of reckoning will eventually come. And we see here for, for one final week, the door of the ark had remained open. People could have gone in. But the week eventually ended, did it not? The door was closed and the flood did come. And it's interesting that Jesus, in John chapter 10, described himself as the door. And so the same God who opens doors is himself the door. He's the door now door there's doors do all sorts of things they they can protect, they can keep things out, and we also see here he's the one who closed the door of the ark and refused to open the door. So my friends, I'm concerned because there are there are there are wicked people in our world today. there might be wicked people sitting here in this room. And my concern is that you might be among them, and God will destroy you, just as He did during the flood. My exhortation is to you that God would be gracious to you. Grace comes to those who don't deserve it, my friends. To those who believe. Do you believe? And don't believe just in faith, but do you believe in Christ, who is the door, come to Him to find refuge for your weary soul. May God be gracious to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this glorious truth that you are a God who destroys the wicked, but you are also very gracious and you save some. You save a remnant you do for them which they could never do for themselves and even though the remnant doesn't deserve your rescuing and your deliverance nevertheless you do it anyway we're thankful for that work may we be ready for the next judgment and not all will enter into heaven but we want to be ready would you cause us to be ready would you Cause us to believe what we've seen here in the scriptures, of what you've revealed about yourself and your ways and your your judgments. May we firmly believe them so much that they they actually cause us to live like it is a reality. That we not live in a fantasy world. Your your judgments have come as you promised they would, and so we know that judgment day is coming as well. We praise You for Your grace, causing us to believe these truths. Continue to be gracious to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.